Darkness hates light. Lies hate truth. And that's the culture we live in today. It's a culture that calls evil good and good evil. It's a culture that doesn't believe that God was divinely created when he said he has made them male and female. They believe that God made a mistake and put people in the wrong body. But you are made in the image of God for his purposes. Philippians 2.13 says, For it is God who worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. It is excellent to be with you this morning. For those that do not know, my name is Andrew Gomison, and I am uh, in happy fellowship with Northwest Gospel Hall in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Uh, but I actually uh, traveled here this morning from Howard City, uh, Michigan, so it was quite the journey, but it was pleasant. Sun was shining, uh, no major delays, and so I thank the Lord for that. Um, if you have your Bibles with you, please turn to the first epistle of Peter, chapter 3. The first epistle of Peter, chapter 3. The last couple of years, I've been with you once a year, and I've been preaching through this epistle with you. And so we're going to tackle the first um, 17 verses of First Peter chapter 3. Um, in my first couple messages, we talked about hope for the believer in 1 Peter chapter 1. And then in 1 Peter chapter 2, we talked about growth for the believer. One of the things we talked about was desiring the sincere milk of the word that we may grow thereby. So, the next three chapters here in First Peter, I believe, are best summarized as practical instructions for the believer. So this message is the first part of what I hope will be a three-part message, and I will be. Uh, I'm scheduled to be back here in July to share with you again, and uh, so we we are beginning uh, a series to finish out this book with practical instruction. For the believer, so that is the backdrop upon which we uh, will begin our study, and so I am going to open in a word of prayer, and then we will begin. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to be here. I thank you for the saints here at Grace, and I pray for those who are absent from us, Lord, that you would give them uh, journey mercies or recovery from sickness, whatever it is they stand in need of, and know that we are thinking of them today, and we are grateful for the bond of the body of, of Christ, and, and for the fact that we um, are bound by the most powerful thing in the world, the blood of Jesus, and I just ask that you would be here today, and Show us what we need to learn from you. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we begin 1 Peter chapter 3, um, we're really going to get into the nitty-gritty of daily life. 
And my first point, if you're taking notes, is this first seven-verse passage has instruction for married couples. And it's interesting to note that Peter is the one apostle that we know had a wife. We know that he had a wife because Jesus at one point heals his mother-in-law. So I believe that when Peter is sharing this with us, he's sharing lessons that he's learned from practical experience, as well as, of course, being divinely inspired by the Word of God. But I think Peter was thinking of his own wife when he penned these words both to wives and to husbands. And I think it's interesting that in Ephesians, there's like one verse for the wives and a bunch of verses for the husbands. And here in First Peter, it's kind of the opposite. There's a lot here for the wives and one particular verse for the husbands. But I think each um, member of married couples can draw from all of these verses, of course, because the word is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. So I'm just going to read these first seven verses of First Peter chapter 3. And it says this, Likewise, ye wives, be in subjection to your own husbands, that if any obey not the word, they also may be They also may, likewise you wives, be subject, likewise you wives, be in subjection to your husbands, that if any obey not the word, they also may be without the, they also may without the word be won by the conversation of their wives, while they behold your chaste conversation coupled with fear. Whose adorning let it not be with the outward adorning of plating of the hair, and of wearing of gold, or of putting on of apparel. But let it be of the hidden man of the heart, in that which is not corruptible, even the ornament of a meek and quiet spirit, which is in the sight of God, of great price. For after this manner in the old time, the holy women also, who trusted in God, adorned themselves, being in subjection unto their own husbands. Even as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters you are as long as you do well and are not afraid with any amazement. Likewise, ye husbands, dwell with them according to knowledge, giving honor unto the wife as unto the weaker vessel and as being heirs together of the grace of life that your prayers be not hindered. So the first thing I want to say about this is that God said it. So we have a responsibility to listen and apply it. That's the first thing. Sometimes with these uncomfortable passages, we we might want to say, well, I don't really need to do that. It's not that important. It's not very high on the list. But this is something that came straight from God to us through the pen of Peter. So we need to be aware of it and be exercised to follow it to the best of our ability. And as we look at this passage, uh, we see that God is calling wives to be in subjection to their husbands so that, primarily in this culture that 1 Peter was written to, they may be one to Christ by your behavior. I think that, that there's a significant cultural thing here where apparently Peter was writing um, to people 
in a culture where there were apparently a lot of women who had come to know the Lord. They were unequally yoked because their husbands had not yet come to know the Lord. And he said, if you um, honor your husbands, if you honor their place of leadership, which God ordained, you can win them without beating them over the head with the gospel. And uh, he, he talks about having chaste conversation. Um, the psalmist says um, to, to the Lord, put a guard over my mouth so that the things that I say will be pleasing to you. He says, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable unto you, O Lord, my Redeemer. So there's a great premium in the Bible of, of putting a guard on our mouths. The Proverbs also say, In the multitude of words there wanteth not sin. So a lot of times when we get wordy, when we start spewing off at the mouth, uh, sin is not far behind. Um, we need to be slow to anger, slow to speak, quick to listen. These are things we can all learn. And then we see a, a verse here whose adorning, let it not be of the outward adorning of the plating of hair and of wearing of gold or putting on of apparel, but let it be the hidden man of the heart in that which is not corruptible, even the ornament of a meek and quiet spirit, which is in the sight of God a great price. I want to say here that I don't think it means that you can't dress nicely or wear jewelry. I don't think it's a prohibition of those things. But what it is saying is that the primary uh, thing that you should be known for as a woman of God is a meek and quiet spirit and that that should be, that your countenance should be the primary facet of your beauty. I have seen countless times where a seemingly beautiful person is ugly because they're not at peace with God. They, they don't have a cheerful countenance. And I have seen other situations where someone who the world would not consider attractive is absolutely beautiful because they have peace with God and their countenance shines with that peace. There's a common saying that if you love the Lord and you're happy about it, tell your face. We need to be showing through our countenance that we are grateful to be redeemed and that we have hope that the world knows not of. We are told to be ready always to give an answer to every man the reason for the hope that is in us. And so then we see the example of Sarah and how she obeyed Abraham. She was in subjection to Abraham. And this is not an oppressive subjection. So many times when we talk about this issue, people say, well, well, that's oppressive. You shouldn't let anybody hold you down. I, I've seen secular, mar- secular married people say on like Facebook posts or whatever, um, my husband should respect whatever I want to do. I'm not going to let anybody tell me what to do. But God said, let everything be done decently and in order. And so he placed an order within the family. We've seen a breakdown of the traditional family. The nuclear family as God ordained it. 
And society is crumbling as a result. That's one of the reasons why I started speaking for him and started traveling and preaching was because I saw that society was crumbling um, from the family down. It's a trickle effect. As the family crumbles, so does society. And in the first chapter of Judges, we read that when all the elders who served with Joshua died, there arose a generation that knew not God. And when I was sitting there about to graduate from college, I was convicted that as much as lies with me, because I know that it's, that it's primarily a work of the Spirit, that I am only the vessel, but as much as lies with me, that I would not be part of having a generation arise after me that knew not God. My goal, my passion, is to proclaim Jesus and Him crucified to as many people as I can, because He is the hope. Amen. When we have confusion in our society, people look everywhere but up. The psalmist said, From whence cometh my help? My help cometh even from the Lord, who made heaven and earth. And he said, what, do I, what did he say? I will look up unto the hills. Because that's where my help is. If you need help, look up. And we have a problem as a society that we look everywhere else but up. So that's an important thing for us to know as we continue on in this study. But then we have a very pointed direction for the husbands. And it says, Likewise, ye husbands, dwell with them according to knowledge, giving honor to the wife as unto the weaker vessel, and as being heirs of life together of as and as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers be not hindered. When God tells us to do something, he has a very specific reason to tell us to do it. And he says to husbands here in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7, if you do not honor your wife, if you do not dwell with them according to knowledge, your prayers are going to be hindered. The book of James says that the effectual prayers of a righteous man avail much. But if your prayers aren't being effective, we, if our prayers are not being effective, we need to check our hearts and find out what may be standing between us and the Lord. The Bible says that we need to keep our accounts short. We sing that song, Nothing between my soul and the Savior. And that's so important as we are trying to grow in our Christian faith and as we are seeking now in this portion of the epistle to apply it practically. It's one thing to learn a lot of lessons about who God is. It's one thing to desire the Word of God to grow thereby and those type of things. But it's another thing to apply it practically and that's where we're at here as we are embarking on 1st Peter chapter 3. So I have a couple cross references here and for the brothers who are here and you have your Bibles ready if you could be looking these up um, this helps me in two ways. Number one I don't have to turn as many pages in my Bible. Number two hopefully it helps to keep you awake. Um, But the first one I would like someone to read is Genesis 2 
23 and 24. Genesis 2, 23 and 24. So Moses, as he's writing the creation narrative, he gives us this command from God, this guideline of how marriage should look. And he says, the woman came from the man, she was a gift to the man. And I think this this gets missed when people talk about equality in the world and also within the church. Women don't realize the high level of value that they have. They were given as gifts to their husbands. And God said, biblical marriage is when a man leaves his father and mother and cleaves unto his wife and they become one flesh, um, which is divinely and creatively shown forth when you see their children arrive. And... I just think we need to realize this is a wonderful gift. And this is the type of passage that we need to go to when people say, well, God didn't say anything against homosexual marriage. God didn't say anything about alternative lifestyles. He absolutely did because he told us the right way to do it. He said, this is marriage. So, Sometimes God tells us as much in what he doesn't say as in what he does say. And he tells us here, this is how marriage is supposed to be. So the next passage that I would like to look at is Titus 2, 3-5. Titus 2, 3-5. couple things about this passage. Number one, sometimes when people preach on Titus, they say, well, Titus chapter one is a bunch of theological truths for us. Titus chapter three is a bunch of theological truths for us. But Titus chapter two, Paul stopped talking about theology and started talking about practical life. So it's not as important. 
My friends, Paul never stopped talking about theology in that whole book. Titus chapter 2 is as important as Titus chapter 1 and chapter 3. He's just saying, this is how you apply what I told you in Titus chapter 1. And the reality is, look at the last phrase of that Titus passage that we just read. Why is the woman to be a discreet, chaste keeper at home? Why is she to be obedient to her husband? Why is she to love her children? She's to do it so that the word of God be not blasphemed. And the word of God is being blasphemed by the world today. So when they look at us, we need to show them something different. Not try to be as close to them as we can be in the way that we conduct our relationships. Their way doesn't work. They don't know what permanent monogamous marriage is like. They need to be shown by us an example of what that is. I'm thankful to have parents who just recently celebrated their 45th anniversary. And they are actually at a marriage conference this weekend because they realize that marriage takes work. And that things that are hard to do are still worth doing. There's a prevailing wisdom in our culture today, which I feel is permeating to a certain extent even our churches, which says if something is hard to do, we should avoid doing it. But what did Timothy say? He said, Thou therefore endure hardness. He uses the word hardness as what? As a good soldier of Christ Jesus. So when Jesus looks down at us here on earth, here at Grace Bible Chapel or at Northwest Gospel Hall or wherever we are, is he going to see soldiers that are willing to endure hardness? Because Paul certainly did. And persecution is getting even worse and worse every day for people here in America. And in places where persecution is rampant, The church isn't shrinking, the church is growing. Because when you have something worth dying for, you have something worth living for. And if you you believe today that we come from nothing, that we're going to nothing, and we have no purpose here on earth, then you're going to live a miserable life. But the God that I serve says to me, you are my workmanship created in Christ Jesus for works which I have before ordained that you should walk in them. And I wake up every day with the confidence that he has more for me to do. There have been three times in my life when I thought I was going to die. And I didn't. And what I have come to realize through that Experience through those collective experiences is that until God is done with me on earth, there's nothing or no one that can harm me. And there's a great confidence in that. A few years ago, the Harry S. Truman Library in Independence, Missouri made public 1,300 recently discovered letters that the late president wrote to his wife, Bess, 
over the course of a half a century. Mr. Truman had a lifelong rule of writing to his wife every day they were apart. He followed this rule whenever he was away on official business or whenever Bess left Washington to visit her beloved independence. Scholars are examining the letters for any new light they may throw on political and diplomatic history. For our part, we were most impressed by the simple fact that every day he was away, the President of the United States took time out of his dealing with the world's most powerful leaders to sit down and write a letter to his wife. There's an old saying that says, the grass is greener on the other side of the fence. But you know what the sign of green grass is? sign of green grass is that it's being watered. So if I could encourage the married couples here to do anything, water the grass on your side of the fence, and you will find that it will turn greener. And that was from Bits and Pieces from October 15, 1992. Okay, for our, so for our second point, we have instruction for living in community. Instruction for living in community. My dad and I have had many discussions, and one of the discussions that we've had is that it'd be so much easier to be a Christian if the minute you became a Christian, God caught you up into heaven and you didn't have to deal with the struggles of life. But that's not the way God has designed it. He's designed us to live in our communities and to live out the truths of Scripture in an imperfect world. So let's look at 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 to 13. 1 Peter 3, 8 to 13 reads, Finally, be of one mind, having compassion one of another, love as brethren, be pitiful, be courteous, not rendering evil for evil or railing for railing, but counterwise blessing, knowing that you are thereunto called, that you should inherit a blessing. For he that will love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking, <coughs> and his lips that they speak no guile. Let him eschew evil and do good. Let him seek peace and ensue it. For the eyes of the Lord are over the righteous, and his ears are open unto the, their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. <coughs> and who is he that will harm you if you be followers of that which is good? So Peter is laying out some practical ways that we can live at peace with everyone in our community. Paul said, as much as lies with you, live at peace with all men. So this is what Peter tells us about how to practically do that. He says to be of one mind. And how do we do that? Well, one way we do that is by gathering around the Lord Jesus for the, the breaking of bread every Sunday morning. It's hard to argue with someone who Jesus died for. And if we think about it that way, it can really help to paint the way we think about other people. And then it says, be pitiful, which means I think have mercy. I think that's a good interpretation. Be courteous. Have good manners. Incidentally, Paul also talks about manners. One of the most practical, straightforward verses in all of Scripture is from the epistle, one of the epistles to the Corinthians where he says, evil company corrupts good manners. 
So if you want to have good manners, hang around with good-mannered people. And then he says, this is a tough one. Not rendering evil for evil or railing for railing, but counterwise blessing, knowing that you are thereunto called that you should inherit a blessing. When someone slanders our name or says something mean about us, what's the first thing we want to do? We want to say, maybe I can say something even meaner about them. I remember something from years ago that they did that nobody else knows, and it's way more embarrassing than anything I ever did, so I'm just going to share it with the world. But that's not what God tells us to do. He says, bless people. Bless those who curse you, Jesus said. Pray for those who despitefully use you. And he also says that we should rejoice in times of trial and persecution. Then he says, For he that would love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips that they speak no guile. The the Bible says that if we want to see a long life, we should be truthful. We should honor our parents. That's the first commandment of the promise. Honor your father and mother that it may be well with you. And another old saying is that if you always tell the truth, you don't have to remember the lies that you made up. Because you'll never forget the truth. And then we see, let him eschew evil and do good. Let him seek peace and ensue it. Sometimes something may seem good to say, but there's a time and a place to say it. And there's also a way to say it. When I was studying communications in college, one of my courses said that only 10% of our communication is verbal. 90% is tone, timing, and any number of other factors. But only 10% is actually the words we say. That's why Proverbs says a soft answer turns away wrath. But grievous words stir up anger. If you say something in a harsh tone, you're going to stir up anger in others. So we need to respond in a soft way. We need to seek peace. Yes, sometimes... Problems need to be dealt with. And this isn't saying sweep things under the rug. But we also read, love covers a multitude of sins. We don't need to bring up a long list of people's uh, faults. Because guess what? If we're honest with ourselves, we have a long list of our own faults. Remember what happened when Jesus said, let him who is without sin, cast the first stone. It says that every person from the oldest unto the youngest dropped their stones and walked away. A lot of people, we don't know what Jesus wrote on the ground, but he was writing on the ground. And some people surmise that perhaps he started writing down their faults one after another. And they realized this guy knows everything I did. As a matter of fact, isn't that what the woman at the well said? This man knows everything I did. Could he not be the Christ? 
The wonderful thing about the Lord Jesus is he knows every evil thought of my heart. And he still says, I love you, Andrew, and I want you to be in heaven. So I am giving you my blood as your redemption. And I am saying to you, as far as the east is from the west, so far have I removed your sin from you. And because of that, I can enter heaven joyfully as a righteous person because Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. And one day I will stand on healthy legs and I will give glory to the Lord Jesus Christ. And probably within milliseconds after standing, I will fall to my knees. Why? Because the Bible says every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so the reason we are supposed to do this, verse 12, for the eyes of the Lord are over the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayers, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. And who is he that will harm you if you be followers of that which is good? Now this does not mean that we do not have physical harm. I've had people tell me, if you would just get right with God, you could walk. God's will is not that you be in a wheelchair. God's will is that you be physically whole. Well, guess what? That wasn't God's will for the Apostle Paul. Paul said, I had a thorn in my flesh, and I asked God three times to remove it. And God said, no, Paul, my grace is sufficient, for my strength is made perfect in your weakness. And what did Paul say? He didn't say, okay, now I'm going to ignore my infirmities. No, he said, most gladly, therefore, will I glory in my infirmities. I'm going to proclaim my infirmities from the housetop. Because when I am weak, then Christ is strong in me. I have learned through 30 plus years, 35 plus years, of walking with the Lord Jesus, that his strength, is made perfect in my weakness. He has allowed me to reach people that I would not be able to reach if I was standing before you whole. And he has allowed me to stay closer to him than I probably would have otherwise. Because there were times when I wanted to do very foolish things, including end my own life. But my wheelchair prevented me from being able to do that. And I'm so very... Thankful. So let's look at, by way of cross-reverence, um, Matthew 5, 10 to 12. Matthew 5, 10 to 12. Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you, and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so persecute today the prophets before the We don't think of rejoicing as a response to persecution. But Paul, writing Philippians from a jail cell, 
which was not as good as the jail cells in Kent County Jail where I go on a regular basis. It was probably just a cave dug in the ground. Tradition tells us that he was probably chained between two guards at most times. And he still wrote, Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. And they were constantly hearing Paul dictate his letters or just preaching the gospel to them. And we know that it was effective because what does the end of Philippians tell us? It says, the saints of Caesar's household greet you. There were saints that were saved in Caesar's household. We cannot put God in a box. We never know who he may redeem next. Remember, I'm sure most of the early apostles had written off Paul who was known as Saul of Tarsus, but God did a work and his work was complete. You know, some people don't believe in the eternal security of the believer, but I ask you this. Have you ever seen a physical baby become unborn again? Jesus said, unless you become born again, you shall not see the kingdom of God. So if you are born again, it is the beginning of a process. Justification happens instantaneously. Sanctification takes a lifetime. But he who has begun a good work in you will be faithful to complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Um, Romans twelve nineteen to 21. Oh. Um. Romans twelve nineteen to twenty one. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So again, more practical instruction. What are we supposed to do when our enemy does something evil to us, we're supposed to do something good. And one thing that I have discovered in my own personal experience is that when you do something nice for someone that you're having a struggle with, a lot of your frustration and anger starts to dissipate. Because your focus is no longer on yourself, but on helping the other person. And Paul said, knowing the terror of men, knowing the terror of God, we persuade men. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of an angry God. We are all fallen people. We need redemption. Philippians 4, 8, and 9. Philippians 4, 8, and 9. Paul 
Philippians 4, 8, and 9. Finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of good report, if there be any virtue, if there be any praise, think on these things. Those things which you have both learned and received and heard and seen in me, do and the God of peace shall be with you. So we have Paul telling us this list of great things to think about. There's a modern philosophy that says you can meditate and clear your mind of everything. Like you can literally be thinking of nothing. But Paul is telling us that our minds are always active. So what does that mean? It means that we need to think on good things. Because if we're going to be thinking anyway, we might as well line up our thoughts with the Lord Jesus. Another passage says, taking every thought captive for the Lord Jesus. Sins often begin as thoughts and then translate into actions. So we need to be aware of that. British statesman and financier Cecil Rhodes whose fortune was used to endow the world-famous Rhodes Scholarship, was a stickler for correct dress, but apparently not at the expense of someone else's feelings. A young man invited to dine with Rhodes arrived by train and had to go directly to Rhodes' home in his travel-stained clothes. Once there, he was appalled to find the other guests already assembled wearing full evening dress. After what seemed like a long time, Rhodes appeared in a shabby old blue suit. Later, the young man learned that his host had been dressed in evening clothes, but put on the old suit when he heard of this young man's dilemma. I really like that story because he was letting the man know that he cared more about the man than his clothes. Now, I don't think this is an excuse to wear your shabbiest clothes to church next Sunday, so please don't misinterpret. But I do think... Um, that it's important for uh, us to connect with people where they are at. Incidentally, isn't that the very reason that Jesus became a human being? Because he existed before the incarnation. The Bible says that he created the world, but he condescended to come down into the womb of a human woman, to be born of her, and to live a human life for 33 years before going back to heaven to intercede on our behalf. And he made the choice to keep his human body for eternity. One day, I'm going to look on his face. And I'm looking forward to that. As Fanny Crosby once wrote, I shall know him, I shall know him, and redeemed by his side I shall stand. I shall know him, I shall know him by the prints of the nails in his hand. And she wrote that, that hymn in response to a conversation with her very own pastor because he said to her, Fanny, it's a shame with all the skills that God has endowed you with that he chose not to restore your sight. Because for those who don't know, she was born healthy, she had scarlet fever when she was one or two years old, And the doctor gave her treatments, which made her permanently blind. And she said to the pastor, she said, I have a great joy in realizing that the first thing I will see 
when I receive my sight back will be the face of my Savior. So our, our final section here is instruction for facing suffering. Paul said all those who are in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. All those who live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. So it follows that we should be prepared for that. 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 14 to 17. But and if you suffer for righteousness' sake, happy are ye, and be not afraid of their terror, neither be troubled. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear, having a good conscience that whereas they speak evil of you, as of evildoers, they may be ashamed that falsely accuse your good conversation in Christ. For it is better, if the will of God be so, that you suffer for well-doing than for evil-doing. So we see here that Peter is saying, persecution will come. It's not a matter of if. It's just a matter of when. And he said we should be happy. No doubt he was recalling the Sermon on the Mount, which we just recently read from when he was writing this. And be not afraid of their terror, neither be troubled. What did Jesus say? He said, be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Even if in the world you will have tribulation, you can still be of good cheer. And then Peter says, But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. Be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. Incidentally, when we were talking earlier about having a shining countenance, that can be a great window to an opportunity to share the gospel. If someone says, why are you so happy? I've had people ask me, how do you deal with your disability on a, on a day-to-day basis? There's only one answer. So it's a great opportunity to say, his name is Jesus. Let me tell you about him. And God will give you some really interesting opportunities. I was sitting in the bus station. This was several years ago now, but I was sitting in the bus station in Grand Rapids because I used to have my dad drop me off there and then I would ride the bus to work when I was working downtown. I was sitting there, I was reading my Bible and these two um, gentlemen came and sat at the table and they started talking to me and I said, where are you from? And they said, well, we just got to America from Ethiopia. So the Lord brought to mind the story of the Ethiopian eunuch. And I had my small Bible with me and I turned to Acts chapter 8 and I shared with him the story of the Ethiopian eunuch. And I said the same thing that God did for him, he can do for you. Now, they never said whether they were believers or not. I just felt compelled to share that with them. And they went on their way. But I had the opportunity to plant a seed. And it was so amazing because of all places where I would meet somebody from Ethiopia, God saw fit 
to bring them to a bus station in Grand Rapids, Michigan. God will do things like that if we are open to following him. And then we see having a good conscience that whereas they speak evil of you, as an evildoer they may be ashamed that faulty accuse your good conversation in Christ. I remember in 2016 when Ben Carson was running for president, he uh, had an interesting thing happen to him. Usually when people run for president, people dig into their past, find something bad about them and exploit it. But he was telling a story on the campaign trail about how when he was a kid, he was so full of anger that he tried to stab a kid at his school. The, a kid's belt buckle saved him because he stabbed the belt buckle and said, in, instead. And Ben recalls going home, locking himself in the bathroom and saying, Lord, I'm not coming out of here until you help me uh, to control my anger. And I don't know if this was really what happened, but in the movie about his life, he just started as a young boy singing, Jesus, the very thought of thee. And he was, he was determined that he was going to, with God's help, um, overcome his anger. Now, for those that know who Ben Carson is and have heard about him, they know that he's one of the most mild-mannered people that has probably ever walked the face of the earth, and yet he had this background. And there were people in the secular media who said, there's no way that happened. You're just making up stories. And, he, and his answer was, but that's the difference that Christ can make in someone's life. As it says in The Chosen, Mary Magdalene is talking to somebody about what Jesus did for her. And she said, all I know was that I was one way and then I met Jesus and I'm completely different. And that is my testimony. I was one way and then Jesus got a hold of my life and now I'm completely different. And the only thing that made the difference was him. And then it says, for it is better if, if the will of God be so that you suffer for well-doing than for evil-doing. I think we have a tendency in our American culture sometimes to be suffering for our own stupidity and think that we're being persecuted when in reality we could have handled the situation better. But if you are truly serving the Lord, you are going to be persecuted. And if you truly love someone and you're sharing them the truth of the gospel, it doesn't matter how gentle you are with it, they are going to hate it because darkness hates light. Lies hate truth. And that's the culture we live in today. It's a culture that calls evil good and good evil. It's a culture that doesn't believe that God was divinely created when he said, He has made them male and female. They believe that God made a mistake and put people in the wrong body. But you are made in the image of God for his purposes. Philippians 2.13 says, For it is God who worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. As we close, I just want to look at a couple more quick cross-references. I know... um, we're ready to, almost ready to eat lunch, but just a couple more uh, verses that I want to share. 
Actually, it looks like I just have one passage, and that is Colossians chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. Colossians 4, 5 and 6. So Paul is telling us to be wise in the way that we interact with others, to know how best to answer every man. When Paul went to Mars Hill, he didn't just start spouting Old Testament scriptures. He went to their statue to the unknown God. And he says, you know, there's a God that you're having trouble knowing, but I have good news for you. The unknown God is knowable and his name is Jesus Christ. And we need to be able to meet people where they are. Because the one thing that is so true about God is he meets us where we are, but he does not leave us there. Most of the Psalms were born in difficulty. Most of the epistles were written in prisons. Most of the greatest thoughts of the greatest thinkers of all time had to pass through the fire. Bunyan wrote Pilgrim's Progress from Jail. Florence Nightingale, too ill to move from her bed, reorganized the hospitals of England. Semi-paralyzed and under the constant menace of apoplexy, Pastor was tireless in his attack on disease. During the greater part of his life, American historian Francis Parkman suffered so acutely that he could not work for more than five minutes at a time. His eyesight was so wretched that he could scrawl only a few gigantic words on a manuscript, yet he contrived to write 20 magnificent volumes of history. Sometimes it seems that when God is about to make preeminent use of a man, he puts him through the fire. And this is from uh, Tim Hansel, You Gotta Keep Dancing, from 1985. And then one final observation from Vance Havner, at the Nicene Council, an important church meeting in the 4th century A.D., of the 318 delegates attending, fewer than 12 had not lost an eye or lost a hand or did not limp on a leg, on a leg lamed by torture for their Christian faith. Imagine that great meeting of Christian leaders and they all bore in their body the marks of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's humbling to me. My prayer for you is that you would walk in a way that would show Jesus to those around you. We all have our own sphere of influence. We all have our own people that are watching us, whether it be our children in the home or the people we interact at the grocery store or the people that we drive on the highway with. There are all ways to show forth the goodness of the Lord Jesus. And of course, you can't show forth goodness if you don't have it in your heart. Jesus said that um, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things are passed away. 
Behold, all things are become new. In Ezekiel, he talks about how we will remove our heart of stone and put in its place a heart of flesh if we but ask him to do so. So it is with that in mind that I encourage you to trust Christ if you haven't. And if you have, renew your commitment to walk in a way that honors him within your community today. Let us close in prayer and also thank God for the food. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the opportunity to open it freely. We pray that we would take advantage of every opportunity to share your word with others. Even if it's just a simple phrase, it doesn't have to be a deep theological truth. But even if it's as simple as Jesus loves you, or even a smile. Lord, we just pray that we would be exercised to do this. That people would see Jesus when they look at us. And reminded of what they said about um, Peter and John. They knew they were unlearned men, but when they looked at them, they knew they had been with Jesus. Lord, that is the prayer of our hearts today. And now I pray for the food. Thank you for the hands that have prepared it. Bless the fellowship around the tables. In Jesus' name, amen.